Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 1, verse 29. We're reading about John the Baptist. The Apostle John is describing a three-day period of time, which took place, I believe, about 40-some days after Jesus was water baptized. This is not the time of Jesus' water baptism. This is the time after he comes back from the wilderness. So the day before he arrived back from the wilderness, a group of religious leaders came out and confronted John. Then John says, on the next day, on the next day, John's there at the river, people are all around, and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming toward him. And when he saw him, he spoke something amazing. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Say that with me. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Say it again. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, now that, we say that's a wonderful statement. Go for it, John. But you have to understand, this is radically different than John's message. John hasn't been saying anything like that. And he, he's been talking about a very different scenario for the Messiah. I'll show you that. And he looks up in this moment and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Father God, open our hearts to this. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it seems God waits until the last possible minute to act. I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure if I could see the situation from his perspective, I would realize he's acting at exactly the right moment. Not a minute too soon, nor a minute too late. But since I can't see things with his perfect perspective, there are times I can feel myself growing frustrated with him, wondering what he's waiting for. And it's at those moments that a real spiritual danger arises. I can become impatient with God. If I let my imagination run wild, I become filled with fear and can grow angry at God. I start questioning whether or not he cares that I'm suffering. It's hard living in a society that doesn't acknowledge God. Speaking of the last days, Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, love will grow cold. Lawlessness is ignoring God's moral standards, and it has a chilling effect on love. We injure each other and withdraw into isolation. We quickly learn not to trust anyone, so at least emotionally we end up living alone. The way of the transgressor is hard, and as people walk away from the laws of God, they think they have freedom, but boy, as, as, as the fruit of what they're doing comes to, 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 to birth, I guess fruit doesn't come to birth, but anyway, I'm mixing my metaphors all over the place here. As the fruit comes to ripeness, anyway, you begin to see the damage of it. The, the families, the divorces, the isolation, the, I won't, no one's talking to anyone else. I mean, it's just, it just sours everything. And just because someone is a believer in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that they can escape living in that harsh environment. 
Yes, as individuals or families or churches, we can enjoy the blessing of God's presence. But day after day, we still have to live in this world. And as pressure grows heavier, we long for relief. We want God to intervene. We start watching for signs that Jesus will come soon to deliver the righteous and give the wicked their due. And if we're not careful, we can become angry at him and that justice is delayed. We wonder, what is God waiting for? You ever thought of that? Yeah. What, what, you know, Lord, when are you going to stop this nonsense? There was a point in time when John the Baptist understood this. Standing by the Jordan River, he looked up and saw Jesus coming toward him. And in that moment, he spoke one of the most powerful prophetic statements in all of human history. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those words are full of meaning. Radical, shockingly unexpected meaning. He pointed to Jesus and in effect said, this one is going to die for us. Now, those words don't imply that Jesus would soon set up God's glorious kingdom on earth. They actually warn that there would be a path of suffering ahead for him. But as time passed and as his own circumstances grew difficult, John began to question those words. He began to grow impatient. Now, I want, to, I want you to understand this. You've got you to see how, how odd it was that John said those words. Monday, on, on the day after this discussion took place, you know the one with all the religious leaders, John looked up and saw Jesus walking toward him. And this may have been the very moment when Jesus was returning from his temptation in a nearby Judean wilderness. What is really surprising, though, are the first words John uttered when he saw saw him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God literally who lifts up and takes away the sin of the world. And when he says world, I mean, this is, this is a, a Jewish prophet. He says the sins of the cosmos. That's the word he used. You know, it meant us too, Gentiles, the whole thing. It was, it was wild. To John himself and to those Jews who heard this statement, the term lamb, particularly one that takes away the sin of the world, could have meant nothing else than a lamb used for sacrifice. Not one person in the crowd heard anything else. In other words, he pointed to Jesus and prophesied that the moral guilt of the entire human race would be transferred to him, and like a, the lamb eaten in the Passover meal, or one of the lambs sacrificed in the temple, he would rescue us from God's judgment by dying as our substitute. Now, you and I know that. To us, this is sound <laughs> doctrine, but this is, at this moment, this is amazing. That picture of Jesus is radically different from the one John had been preaching. Two of the other gospels give us samples of typical sermons he preached. They reveal that he focused on the idea that the Messiah would bring God's judgment, not his mercy. The coming one would not only baptize the righteous with the Holy Spirit, he would also baptize the unrighteous with, the, with fire of God's judgment. That's the fire, by the way, it talks about Holy Spirit and fire. The fire, fire part's not good. The Holy Spirit part's good. You want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But the baptism with fire is the fire of God's judgment. He says he's going to come with a winnowing fork in his hand. Remember that? And winnowing fork, he says, this big, big pitchfork, and, and, he, and he's going to stick it into that wheat, and he's going to throw it in the air, 
and the chaff blows over here and the wheat kernels fall here and he's going to gather the wheat into his barn and he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So you better repent. Get in the water now. That was his message. He's coming and you're toast if you don't repent quick. He's here already. Fire. I could do this, you know. Okay. My, yeah. John's central message was to warn people to repent before the Messiah arrived. Because once he arrived, it would be too late. With that in mind, the first words that came out of John's mouth when he saw Jesus are shockingly different. Instead of saying, here comes the one who's going to judge us, he said, here comes the one who's going to die for us. This dramatic change in his message forces us to ask the question, where did he get this new revelation? Since John was a true prophet, one possibility is that he spoke words that were given to him by the Spirit, but that he didn't understand. Such things did happen. But I personally suspect he spoke a truth Jesus had recently taught him. When Jesus presented himself to be baptized, John initially resisted, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? To understand John's reactions, we need, reaction, we need to remember that Jesus was not someone who was unknown to him, nor is it likely that he was unaware of the circumstances of Jesus' birth. His mother was the person who took Mary into her home and sheltered her while she was pregnant. You remember this, right? These are cousins. He doesn't not know Jesus. This isn't like, who are you? I don't, I don't know that they had lots of time, but I will tell you, their mothers were deeply close. This, his mother is who Mary trusted herself to when she had to get out of Nazareth, pregnant. And this is where she fled, to his mother. Those women love each other. Those are, those are sisters in the Lord. Okay, so those, it's not like he doesn't know this. Now, and look at this. As John was growing up in that household, is it possible to think that Elizabeth did not tell him how he had leapt in her womb when Mary arrived at their door? Do you think she wouldn't have ever said that? John, when, when, when I was pregnant with you, our cousin Mary came to the door pregnant with Jesus and she I heard her voice you leapt in me and you were filled with the spirit how did she know that I don't know but she knew something something happened to that baby you were filled with the spirit son he is he, he's got background there's there's all kinds of things that he knows about this Jesus or that his father Zacharias did not tell him about the prophecy he spoke over him at the time of his birth. Go reread it. For John, baptism represented repentance. It was a prayerful renouncing of our sins and a calling on God to wash us clean. Why? That's why baptizing Jesus made no sense to him. Jesus had done no sin. So it confused John when he insisted on being baptized. I... I believe that it was during that event that Jesus explained to John that his obedience to God's plan for his life would lead to a violent death. Yes, he needed to be baptized. But in Jesus' mind, 
the waters of baptism had taken on another meaning. He had not come to the water to wash away sins, but rather to lay himself down in a watery grave. He was using this symbol to indicate his full submission to the cross, which he knew was waiting for him in the future. In effect, he stood there in the river. As he stood there, he asked John to bury him. And by that action, he fully surrendered to the Father's will. You see what I'm saying? He comes out to the river. Who, who understands these things? Who understands that Messiah must die? Who understands that the sin of the world would be placed on him? One person does. It's Jesus. And Simeon, if you remember. Simeon, that prophet of the temple, when, when, when they brought the baby in 30-some days after he was born. Simeon got it. Mary knows that a sword will pierce your heart, sweetheart. The sword will pierce your heart. They know, but not many people know. And John sure didn't know. He didn't have it on the radar at all. I believe when Jesus came out, John says, no, I can't baptize you. I, I know you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, I need to do this. I need to do this. Baptize me. And I'll tell you why. I know where my, I, as I follow the Father, I know where it's going. Isaiah 53 is very clear. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, I see them. I'll be pierced. I'll be, my beard will be torn. I know where this is going. But if this is the Father's will for me, I embrace it. I embrace the cross. John, bury me. And so as Jesus was being baptized, for him, all of a sudden, the waters of baptism were being radically transformed. No longer washing. It's now a grave. And by the way, I believe that's where Christian baptism started. Because our baptism is buried with Christ, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what the, the Bible goes, the New Testament church believed. We were buried with him. Who started that? Our Lord. Our Lord. He changed it right there. Bury me, John. And as he came up, how did the father respond to that surrender? Heavens open, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit falls on him. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment, and he rests on him like a dove. I admit, there is no passage to which I can point that proves this conversation between John and Jesus occurred. But if it did, it answers two very important questions. First, why did Jesus want to be baptized when he'd done no sin? And second, where else did John learn such a profound insight about the substitutionary death of the Messiah? Because it does not appear he understood this truth at all before this, nor did he retain this insight. That's where we're going today. In time, he grew discouraged. From a dungeon in Herod's prison, he sent a message to ask Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we... Look for someone else. It appears that in his thinking, he had returned to the Messiah as fearsome judge. And Jesus was not doing the things a fearsome judge would do. He seems to have forgotten his own words about Jesus being the Lamb of God. So Jesus warned him, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Does Jesus know this about himself at that point in his ministry? Yet the fact that Jesus understood this truth about himself, even as early in his ministry as his baptism at the Jordan, is shown by, st by statements he made only a few days later. 
To religious leaders who challenged his authority to drive money changers out of the temple, he replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And to Nicodemus on a rooftop at night, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's no question that by the end of his earthly ministry, he recognized such symbols about himself in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. But I suspect it was at these same sorts of passages that he was already discussing with the teachers in the temple when he was only 12 years of age. John at Machiris. Would you turn to Matthew 11? I'm going to look at verses 2 and 3 first. Matthew 11, verse 2 and 3 says this. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? By the way, Machiris... Is, um, is the name of the place where it's, it's, uh, it's up in the region, it's, it's, it's in Jordan today, uh, in, the, in the region east of the Jordan River. And uh, I, I call it a mountain. That whole area is very deeply gorged and all. And so this is like on a, on a volcano top. It's just a, it is a real steep-sided mountain. And, and Herod the Great had built a palace on top of this thing. And beneath it, there is a dungeon. Uh, I've not been there, but I've, I've seen pictures of this. It's a horrid dungeon. This is really dark. It's just deep in the stone thing underneath. And that's where John was held uh, for I don't know how long, but I think, I think a, a significant period of time. He was held in that horrid dungeon. In a dungeon beneath Herod Agrippa's mountain palace, John grew impatient. He had been so sure that Jesus was the promised Messiah he could still remember watching the Holy Spirit descend from heaven and rest on him like a dove. Yet as he sat there day after day in the darkness of that horrid place, he grew frustrated. What was Jesus waiting for? Yes, he had explained that he was going to die like a lamb, but what about all those other promises in Scripture that describe a Messiah coming down in power to deliver Israel from its enemies? There was no denying that Jesus was doing amazing miracles. But they were not the kind of miracles John had been hoping for. They were not the kind of miracles he needed if he were going to be set free from that dungeon. So he politely sent some disciples to ask Jesus a simple question. Did I make a mistake in thinking that you were the Messiah? Because if you keep doing what you're doing, I'll probably die in here. We need to be very careful not to sit in judgment of John as if we were not subject to the same struggle. This great prophet had already exhibited an amazing level of integrity and courage. But we do need to recognize that there was a struggle taking place inside him. He was growing discouraged because God's deliverance was so slow in coming. Why didn't Jesus exercise his divine power to bring justice to that troubled land? When we're under pressure... As persecution or disapproval or difficult times increase, our hearts begin to turn more and more to the prophecies of the last days. We long for his coming. 
We long for him to break into this thing and stop this and bring his justice, don't we? I think it's a perfectly normal, perfectly righteous desire, but it can sour. It it opens the door for a danger. Now, you're in Matthew 11. I'm not. I closed my Bible for reasons known only to my subconscious. (laughs) Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus answered, listen to the answer. Jesus answered and said to him, to them, these disciples who'd come as representatives, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He, that last line is from Isaiah 61 which has the, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. It goes on and on. And it, and it says, and, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then remember when Jesus read it, he stopped it there because the next line, and to declare the, vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't say that. In my assignments, the favorable year. It's very powerful. But, so that's the, he references that. And then Jesus, verse six, says this. And this is, this is in case you wonder, did John mean that? This verse, in my opinion, clarifies. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. All right, let's look at um, Jesus' response. It's very interesting to watch how Jesus reacted to John's question. He simply reminded John that people were being saved, that God's power was restoring people. And then he warned him gently, He said, in effect, blessed are those who don't become offended when I don't do things according to their timetable. When I delay the justice they deserve so that more people can be rescued. John was looking at the injustice of the society, the blatant violations of God's holy standards by the government, at the decay of the religious system itself. Jesus, on the other hand, was looking at individuals. It seems there is always a tension between justice and love. Now, Peter talks about this very clearly, this frustration, this impatience. Would you go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3? I'll, I'll start with our introduction. When a society turns away from God, it is so easy to grow self-righteous and angry. I think anyone who walks closely with God grows exhausted watching the foolish choices people make. Like Peter's description of righteous lot, we are, quote, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unrighteous men. We feel our righteous soul tormented day by day, day after day by their lawless deeds. And some people never seem to learn from their mistakes. They never seem to come to the realization that things are going badly for them because they have ignored God. They invent one explanation after another as to why things aren't working and then launch out on a new wrong path, which predictably ends up in disaster. Until a person repents, there's a deception. And so you think, okay, now they're going to figure it out. I mean, that went so bad. They're gonna, now they're going to wake up and go, I must need God. Yeah. And, and they go... I know what's wrong. And they they turn and go another absolute crazy direction, right? You go, what is wrong with you? Deception. 
That's what's wrong. That's how come you pray. There's a deception there. How long are we supposed to wait? How long do we keep praying and hoping? At what point do we give up? Thankfully, the Apostle Peter addressed this type of frustration because believers were feeling the same way in AD 66, one year before Peter was martyred. Listen, I'll, I'll, I'm, gonna, I'm in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I'm reminding you of the Bible, Old Testament and New. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. I don't think he's coming at all. That's what they're saying. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. I will explain this in just a minute. I'm going to paraphrase this. So, so if it doesn't make sense to you, bear with me. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. Say that. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Say that. But for all to come to repent. Isn't that clear? Isn't that wonderful? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness. Knowing how it's going to end, why don't you walk carefully? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then down to verse 15, there's just a wonderful phrase there. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Say that. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. All right, now let me paraphrase what I, I believe you just, he, Peter just said to us. Number one, Noah and the flood prove that God will judge evil. If you have any doubt that there will be absolute justice applied to everyone, you can let that worry go. He has proven that he will indeed judge evil. Number two, the next judgment the final judgment will cause the entire universe to disintegrate. Verse number three. So God is not in a hurry. <laughs> number four. He is waiting for every soul who will come to him. Did he say that? Yeah. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repent, all who will. And he knows that number, by the way, doesn't he? Yeah. He knows the name of every one of you before you even came to him. In fact, he formed you in your mother's womb. He's watched over you and knew you before you were conceived. He knows who's his. And he's, 
This God of ours is waiting for the last one. This ship doesn't go till the last ones come up the gangplank. You understand? That's the way he is. Aren't you glad he's your God? At some point in time, the harvest of souls will end. The Bible says that. There's a point where it ends. Number six, when that happens, Jesus will return and this universe will be destroyed. Number seven, until that day comes, our assignment is to live obediently to God, not follow the culture around us. Number eight, we need to keep longing and praying for God's eternal kingdom to come. Keep our eyes focused there. But number nine, until it does, we should not grow frustrated with him. During this season of history, he will allow us to be persecuted. Did you notice this? He will allow us to be persecuted. But there's a reason. He's not being slow in keeping his promise to bring justice. He's being patient toward those who aren't saved yet. Peter was a great disciple of his rabbi. You'll notice he's explaining the same truth we heard Jesus explain to John the Baptist. This is the basic message. Don't grow frustrated when God withholds his justice. He knows what he's doing. He's pursuing every last soul who will come to him. And not until the very end of the age will he shorten his timetable for us. What I'm referencing there is in the book of Revelation, it, in, the very, in the last days, it says there are souls underneath the altar in heaven, and they're crying out, how long, Lord? How long, Lord? And what it is, is so many people, so many believers are dying in, 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 of martyrdom in, in the last tribulation. The, the cry goes up. And in other places, it has, it has, and I give you the references if you want to look at them. Another place, the angel has a censer with the prayers that are going up before the Lord. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? In, Ma in Matthew 24, if you recall, Jesus says, if those days were not shortened, there would be no life left. Uh, and that's talking about us. It's talking about the believing, believing people. And he said, there'd be no life left. Therefore, the days are shortened. So God does intervene. But that's where I see it in scripture that he will shorten this. We need to calm down and focus on keeping our life pleasing to him. And in doing what we can do to help those who are looking for God find him. As our society declines into lawlessness... We are very vulnerable to this same kind of impatience. We too can find ourselves focusing on last days prophecies. They're, they're, they're brewing now, aren't they? It's not, <laughs> I don't know how many of you are, you know, I just love the internet. And, uh, you know, we've Googled stuff and by George, you, you've got dates already, you know, ha ha ha. And can I tell you what God looks for? It's not dates. And when you have your date, I'm guaranteeing you, you're wrong. What is he watching for? The harvest. He's watching souls. It isn't about a date on a calendar. It's when the last soul's in. You follow that? Yeah. So what happens is as pressure comes on, people seek relief. And he's got to stop this thing. He's got to end it. It's going to come up. He's going to blow. So you get the books and you go on, you Google the thing and you're online and you got it and we got your dates and here you go and you start throwing yourself into that to find psychological relief. I suggest we find our relief 
morning after morning in the word of God. Let him give you hope. Get living, give you a strong promise that he's with you, that his power is there, that you're gonna be fruitful. These are good days. See, he's, he's not a loser. He's gonna have us be victorious. But it doesn't mean he's changing his timetable to make us feel better. In fact, he says he won't. Jesus is saying to John, is John sitting in prison? John, you're frustrated that I haven't come with a pitchfork and separated the wheat from the chaff, burned them with unquenchable fire, and, and, and brought righteousness to this land. Let me tell you what's happening, John. People are getting saved. The lepers are cleansed. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. And the gospel's being preached. And the kingdom of God is gathering souls in. John, I'm not going to shorten the timetable. Even though, my beloved friend, you're in a dungeon. Even though you will end up with your head cut off. God will not shorten the timetable for you, John. You you following this? This This is strong stuff. And he won't for us either. He won't for us either. While it is yet day, while we have the freedom, we need to roll up our sleeves and go for it. These are the times for mission trips. These are the times for, for ministries. These are the times to be, be praying and, 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 and sharing our faith wherever we can. Where can you help? Where can I help? What can we do? We can do all we can do. For night cometh when no man will labor. We too can find ourselves focusing on last day prophecies and growing frustrated with God. We too can start asking, what's he waiting for? But if we've listened deeply to what Jesus and Peter have explained to us, instead of growing angry, we'll become glad that because of his love, God is just delaying his justice. Jesus taught us to pray that God's kingdom will come. And in fact, he taught us to stay alert and watch for it. But I think he wants us to focus our prayers on seeing his kingdom arrive in the hearts of people. One person after another. Like a farmer who prays for the daylight to last just a little longer. So he can finish harvesting the last portion of a field. I think God wants us to pray, Lord, give us time to reach more. We know you're coming soon. We know there will be a perfect justice someday. And though it's hard on us, we would rather you waited for the last person who's going to repent. All we ask is that you would give us the grace we need And draw us close. Instead of becoming impatient. We're going to roll up our sleeves. And be ready to help you reach people. I actually. Hope he's not coming soon. My understanding of biblical prophecy. It's not yet time yet. It's moving there. Uh, You can see it from here. It's remarkable. But I, I don't... Is, do you realize that the church is growing today faster than it's ever grown in history? That, 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 that there, are, there, are, there are like over half a billion Pentecostals on planet Earth today? Uh, you know, folks like us, the wild ones, the crazy ones. 
Yeah, us. This is a tremendous time, people. In our own church. You know what they're ministering in our children's program this weekend? The baptism of the Holy Spirit to the children. Kids are getting saved. Kids are getting baptized. Our youth, did you see those sweet phrases in front of you? They're going on mission. We've got, we've got our high schooler in, uh, coming home from San Francisco today. Our college ages in Montana. Reaching souls. We don't want that to stop so we get psychological relief. You, you just keep at it. And we get our relief in the word of God. And we get our relief in the, in the spirit of the Lord. We keep strong in him. And while it is yet day, we roll our sleeves up and we take out as much harvest as we can. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.